you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd invite you to look with me in the book of James today. We're going to look in chapter 4 at the first 12 verses of this new chapter together. Uh, before I do that, I want to give uh, my, my usual three-point reading introduction. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about next year. I uh, want to give you an update and then review James. So into next year. So I want to tell you on the front end that, as you might guess, things are going to be a little bit wonky. So normally we end a series before Advent, do something in December for Advent, and then start a new series in the new year. Well, if, in case you hadn't noticed, we're still plugging through James. And so we're not done with James yet. So I want to tell you a little bit about the next year and some of the things that the leadership of your church has talked about. I want to communicate this to you. Um, I'm going to be off this week. Uh, so next Sunday I won't be here. And so Skyler will be preaching for me next week. And I'm really looking forward to having some time off. have a wedding in Charlotte next Friday. And so I'm going to get out of town tomorrow or Tuesday and go see Jenny's family and some of my family and be together with them for a few days before we head to Charlotte. So I'll be actually off next week, which I'm very excited about. Um, it'll be nice to finally, you know, have a week I'm not on chemo where I can go somewhere and, and, and do something. Um, the elders have encouraged me to take a little bit more time after my, as my treatments draw to a close. So as you know, I have one more round of chemotherapy. I'll get more to that in a second. Um, so I'm going to be taking a break, a break from preaching for a few weeks because, as you know, I didn't go away in October to get my study leave to plan out this next year. So the elders know that that's important for all of us. And so I'm going to take a couple weeks and try to plan out sermon series in 22. And uh, I'm leaning toward Romans. Uh, that's something I thought about in June when this diagnosis happened, and I just haven't had any time to map that out or plan that. Uh, believe it or not, this is the one thing that I put all my energies into every week is right what I'm doing now. I haven't really had the energy to do a lot of other things. So um, at my elders' request, and I gladly would accept it, I'm going to be spending some time thinking and planning uh, at, the la at the last of my treatments and uh, then when I come back from that, um, we will finish James, so I'm not going to leave us hanging, and I have about three or four sermons left in James, and then we will jump into our new series for the year, and I'll tell you what that is as the Lord shows it to me, so if you want to pray about all that, please do, um, but I know what we're going to do in 2023. Uh, we're going to go back through the uh, four-part story of Scripture again. That's something that I think is important for us to do every, every three years. So, just want to give you that little tidbit about what's coming in the new year. We will finish James, then we'll move into something else, and I need time to plan, so I'm going to do that. Here's an update on my health. Uh, so today is the last day of round five of my, of my treatments, um, and I'm very excited to be uh, taking my last pills for round five tonight. I'm very excited about that. Round five has not been worse than round four, so that's something I'm very thankful for, and I really appreciate your prayers about that. Uh, I had a follow-up appointment this week with the oncologist and uh, got all my lab work done, but for whatever reason, the lab didn't produce results that day. And when I've called back several times, I haven't gotten a response. And so I can't tell you how my markers are because I don't know. Uh, I can tell you that everything seems to be doing great. Um, and I'm very thankful for that, but I don't have those tangible marker result numbers to tell you what's going on. But I'm glad that this week has not been worse than round four. Um, and uh, last week, I specifically asked you to pray because uh, not this past Friday, not Christmas Eve, but the week before that was my first four consecutive hours of sleep. Do you remember me telling you that last week? Uh, well, last Sunday night, I slept seven straight hours. 
And so thank you for your prayers. Um, now, I would love to tell you that I've had five straight days of seven hours, but Monday and the rest of the week has been the usual. I get up every hour and a half to two hours, somewhere between two and five times a night, just depends. Um, and so I've had another week of not sleeping great. Uh, but here's the truth. I don't wake up feeling exhausted. I can't explain this stuff to you. Chemo is weird, okay? It's strange. It's uncomfortable. Strange things happen that you don't anticipate. Um, but that's how my week has been. And I thank you for your prayers on my behalf. And again, I want to encourage you to keep them up. Um, all right, so let's get into James. And if you have more questions about how I'm doing, feel free to ask me afterwards. I appreciate your questions. I appreciate your texts. I appreciate that some of you don't text me and don't ask because you don't want to bother me. I don't take offense to that. And I'm not, I'm not, I guess I should reiterate this. I'm not standing up here thinking, you know, these people have never said anything to me since I started treatments. I don't think that way. I know that many of you have made a conscious decision not to say anything to me, and I get that, and I thank you for it. There's only so much I can handle anyway. All right, that's it. Let's jump into James. So here's the question. What is James describing? Anybody remember? A cruciform life. James, the book of James, holistically is describing for us a life shaped by the cross. All right, question number two. Um, how is God seeking to motivate us in James? By grace. And how are we typically motivated? By deficit. Right, exactly. Most of us live our lives, if you look at whether you're going to the gym or in classes or professionally and production-wise, everything's motivating you by deficit. You haven't done this. You can't lift that. You need this kind of production. Everything is deficit, Right? So you want to work harder, do better because you want to be more productive because there's some deficiency. Well, I want you to know the God of the Bible, the God of the universe motivates us by grace because we're always going to be deficient. That's why we need this guy named Jesus because he is our fullness and our everything. So the great challenge we have in our lives is to be motivated by his fullness from his fullness in your jobs, at home, and even at the gym, to be motivated by his fullness. So I'll ask you again, is it possible that you, would you be willing, would you consider being motivated by grace in your life rather than by deficit? I've spent a lot of my life being motivated by deficiency, always wanting to be better than someone else. I struggle with this too. All right, lastly, by way of introduction, God wants us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. He wants us to love God, love people, and love place. And hopefully by now, as we begin chapter four, you can see what ordinary looks like. Not showing partiality, watching our tongue, being careful, being disciplined. God wants us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things. All right, that said, let's jump into James 4. Listen to this. This is God's word. This is a portion of a letter from home. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture say, says he yearns jealousy over the, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will free from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge." There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Does that sound kind of ominous, maybe a little bit to you this morning? Does it? A little bit maybe? I don't know. It's hard to tell again with your masks on. Well, let's pray and let's ask God to help us. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're learning how true it is, because it really speaks to us in deep ways all the time. Thank you for knowing us better than we know ourselves. Thank you for promising to be with us no matter what. Thank you for giving us good news to sing about. Thank you that we can confess our sins to you knowing that you will forgive, pardon, and change, and give us power for new obedience. Thank you that we can say together that our only comfort in life and death is that we belong to you, Jesus. So, Help us to hear all of those things again as we look at James. Holy Spirit, make our Savior more irresistible to us. Make him irresistible again and again and again so that our lives might declare this week that what you say, Father, is true. We pray for your glory and our good. Amen. Can you think of a time in your life in which someone you know confronted you. And they confronted you with something that you didn't know about before. They gave you a piece of knowledge and insight that you didn't have before. And it stung a little bit. But because you knew how committed they were to you, you actually could receive what they said. Can you think of a time when that happened? Can you think of a time when someone confronted you, but because you were in a deep relationship with them, you received what they said. And in receiving what they said, you felt free. You felt like you grew as a human being. You felt like progress was made. And you felt like there was genuine advancement in your life. Can you think of a time like that? Let me give you some quick examples of my own life. One of my best friends in seminary, we had a preaching class together. And uh, what we would normally do is uh, we would be given text and then we would preach in front of the class and the professor and the other students would uh, critique our preaching. And uh, my friend uh, preached one, uh, one day and after he finished, the professor stood up and said, you know, Josh, 
Your words aren't matching your mannerisms. You can't preach on the love of Christ while clenching your fist. You shouldn't preach on the love of Christ while you've got this stern look on your face and you're pointing at people. Your words aren't matching your mannerisms. Again, because there was a relationship there, my friend could receive that and all of us like, we're like, oh yeah, our mannerisms should match our words. Let's be more, I don't know, bring it down even further. Do any of you have a friend that would look at you if you had a booger in your nose and be like, hey man, you got a booger in your nose? And it makes you a little uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, you're like, thank you, right? Or, or maybe, maybe it's that friend that, that sees you have kale in your teeth. Or like last week for me, I officiated a wedding and the, uh, the husband of the groom was looking at me in the service and like, like my hair was messed up and he was trying to get me to fix it. I didn't even know it. He wasn't trying to embarrass me. He wasn't trying to belittle me. He was trying to help. Can you think of a time in your life in which someone has confronted you and because of your relationship, you could receive what they say and know that you are not only learning but actually advancing as a human being? I hope you've had those moments. I hope that you're not so isolated in your life that no one can ever tell you anything without just crushing your soul. Beloved, what God is doing with us in James, the first 12 verses of chapter four, is that very thing, not crushing us. He is confronting us. And because our relation with God is so tight and so deep, we are to receive his confrontation because by receiving it, knowing our relationship with him, it helps us to make progress, to grow, to feel liberated. You got me? Does that make sense? So here are two trigger points today. And these are gonna sound kind of weird, but I hope they'll make sense at the end. The first is, do you have the right friends? And secondly, what is growing inside of you? So we're thinking about this idea, God's confronting us, and because of the relationship we have with him, it's liberating, life-giving, we advance. And how are we gonna get there? This way. We're gonna think about do we have the right friends, and we're gonna think about what's actually growing inside of us. You got me? All right, well, let's jump in. For those of you that love to connect texts with previous texts, for those of you that love to study scripture and see connections between chapters and verses, as a quick sidebar, remember last week we talked about there are two kinds of wisdom. Uh, one of them is worldly wisdom, the other is otherworldly wisdom. Uh, one we're drawn to, the worldly wisdom, the other is what we need, and the other is what actually produces in us a beautiful life. Do you, does that sound somewhat familiar? Well, what do you think, to move into chapter four, look at the first verse, what do you think could possibly disrupt or be a fundamental hurdle to a beautiful life? Look at verse one. Conflict, fights, quarrels. Get it? Here's what a beautiful life looks like, and now here's the biggest obstacle. There are fights and quarrels and argumentation. Let's press this even more. How many of you have had a fight-free week? I know it's Christmas, be happy, but honestly, 
Has anybody had a fight-free week? How about look at your job? On the scale of one to 10, how's the conflict at work? How is it? You, 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 you rocking a two right now or are we about a nine? Because it's the end of the year and you gotta get this done or you have some deadline. Or maybe you're past that and now you're not actually relating to anyone really in your office or in your work. And so you might think it's easy, but in the back of your mind, what's the conflict like? How about individually? What's the conflict like for you internally? Do you feel a war going on within? Like honestly, do you have something going on in your life where you can sense there's conflict? It could be warring with yourself. How about what you listen to and what you read? Do you listen and read things that encourage conflict? Do, do you have to have an enemy to keep going in your life? Do you have to be angry to keep going? Seriously, think about this stuff. Do you need to have someone driving you to be upset in order to feel like you actually mean something? And if, you, if you'll think about that, and if you're the kind of person that is driven by conflict or driven by anger or hostility, is that really healthy? Like, has that really helped you in relationships over the years? Or as you reflect back, has that just left you with a bunch of people that get angry about the same things that you do? And so you actually hang around people that are just angry about the same things you are, but nothing really productive is ever accomplished. Everybody just gets mad. You know, we call that an echo chamber. Do you feel that pull toward that? That desire for anger? Why is it that we all live in a culture that is so prone to anger? Have you noticed that? And I'm saying that without being angry. I'm saying that as a description, as an observation. We live in a culture of anger that everyone expects you to be angry. And if you're not angry about the same things they are, they think that you're the enemy. Do you get what James is talking about? This anger that seems to be everywhere, do you see it in yourself? Are you willing to see it in the culture in which we live and are a part of? Do you realize that it can be in the things that you read and listen to that it feeds that, that quarrelsome spirit, that, that ignites that desire to fight? Do you realize that? So James tells us that there's two causes for this. There are two causes for this fighting spirit. There are two reasons why we see quarrels everywhere and fights all the time. There are two reasons why we have a war going on within us. There are reasons why we want someone to get us excited to be angry about something because we feel like we're really alive when we're fighting. There are two reasons. Here's the first one in verse 2. We don't have something we want. That's what verse 2 says. There's something we want that we don't have. James is going deep inside of us. He's saying the reason that you fight is because there's something you want, but you don't have it. And, and when you don't have the thing that you want, then you murder. And you might think, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Do you remember what Jesus said? Maybe you haven't physically murdered anyone. Maybe you have. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus says, him, from the lips of Jesus, if you harbor hatred or bitterness in your heart, you've murdered. You ever murdered anybody? 
In other words, when you don't have what you want, you murder. You are willing to take something by force. When I was on campus, there was another uh, ministry leader, and every time I would see him in public, every time I would see him with a student, he always made fun of me in front of the student, always. I murdered that guy thousands of times in my heart. I would get so frustrated. I was nervous about being around him because I, I knew that he was going to make some smart aleck remark to make fun of me in front of someone else. I murdered that guy over and over and over. Then James says, not only will you murder, but then you'll covet. Look at your life. Look at verse 2 and 3. There's something you don't have that you want, and when you don't get it, you'll try to take it by force. You'll spend your life looking at what other people have and think, I want that. If I had that, I'd be a better person. If I had that, I'd, I'd, I'd be a better life. If I had a better life, I'd be more comfortable. If I had that, oh my goodness, what I would do with that. What they're doing with that, they're wait, that, that's a waste. You covet what other people have? Not just things, not just tangible things, but character traits. Then he goes on and says, actually, you don't have because you don't ask. You see that in the verses? He just continues on. Are you afraid to ask for help? Like there's something in your life that you need or want, but you won't ask for help? Are you too good to ask for help? Is it hard for you to ask for help? Do you struggle to ask for something? That's what he's talking about. And, and then he says immediately after that, but then when you do ask, Oftentimes, we ask with the wrong motives because we want to serve self. Do you see that in the text? It's right there. In other words, think about your prayer life. Man, I've had to do this a lot through the last six months. Think about your prayer life. And if you need help with that, scroll back through your Facebook feed, scroll back through your Instagram, scroll back through Twitter, scroll back through things that you like. Just think about how you ask. Think about how you pray. Lord, just make this go away now. Lord, just make there be no effects from this. Lord, just get this out of my life and get me back to normal. You ever notice about that about how we pray? Go through a hard time. Lord, just make it go away. Maybe you'll come to a point in your life. Maybe I'll continue to come to points in my life in which I realize the only thing I'm doing in those moments is I just want God to satisfy what I think should happen. That's why it's been hard for me to say to you, will you pray for me and pray for my healing, please? Remember we've talked about this? Will I be healed? What's the answer to that? Yes. It'll either be on this side of the grave or the other. I will be healed. I've said that to you. We have agreed with that. I believe that is true. I will be healed. I just don't know when. But I've also had to say to you, Will you pray that God will be glorified as I go through this? And the more I read James, the more I think I should pray, you know, Lord, back to the language of chapter one in the first few verses, will you let this trial have its full effect in my life? I don't want that. I do. No, I don't. I do. No, I'm not sure I do. Do you feel that? James is talking right to us. 
There's something you want that you don't have. So you'll take it by force. You'll desire everything from everybody else and critique everybody all the time. You won't ask for help because you're too proud. I'm too proud. And when I do ask, I just want something to follow my agenda. I don't want whatever God's doing to have its full effect in my life. I just want to move on. Get what James is saying? There's the first reason. Here's the second reason. Maybe you have the wrong friends. Look at verse four. Don't you know, beloved, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You see that? Here's the second reason why there's quarrels and fighting. The first one is we have something we don't want. The second is we got the wrong friends. And just so you know, when James says friendship with the world, he's not talking about a person there. He's talking about a way of life. He's talking about a way to think. He's talking about a way to evaluate my life. He's talking about what we mentioned last week. He's referring to like these mantras that the world gives us, mantras of the way that we should live. You know, the mantras of worldly wisdom are things like, don't ever admit you're wrong. The, the mantra of the world, the way of the world, the way to live, the way to think, the way to evaluate your life is to think, you know what? I deserve a good life. I deserve a comfortable life. Don't admit you're wrong. Operate as if you deserve a good, comfortable life. It's the mantra that says, you know what? I am what I feel deepest. It's the mantra that says, you need to get ahead. And that's coupled with the other things we talked about last week, isn't it? That the real way that we can tell that we're winning at life, when we employ those mantras in our lives, we don't admit our wrong, we think everything's, about, we don't admit we're wrong, we think everything's about us, then, then we begin to think, you know what, here's what winning at life is. I'm getting ahead of everybody, uh, I have a comfortable life, people respect me, um, I'm comfortable, um, my life is about amassing wealth. And James is saying, is that your friend? Like when you hear that mantra, when you hear those mantras, when you think about winning at life in that way, do you realize that you are just snuggling up with and becoming friends with the world? Do you get that you're adopting the way the world says to live and the way the world says to view your own life? Do you get that? Because friendship with the world is actually to create hostility with God. So if you're thinking that your life is just about amassing wealth, then guess what? You're going to be easily offended when someone wants you to admit you're wrong because amassing wealth is tied to not being wrong and being better than others and more efficient and more productive. So if you can always stay on the side of never admitting you're wrong, then you can just outlast people and get everything you want. Or if you just do the right thing, you can get respect from people and then you'll actually be winning at life. And oh, by the way, here's the subtlety, right? Amassing wealth isn't wrong in and of itself. Getting respect from people isn't wrong in and of itself. Wanting some level of comfort isn't wrong in and of itself, is it? But when that becomes the direction of our lives, that is when we might need to realize that we have a wrong, we have the wrong friends. That the voices in our head and the voices we love to listen to 
are actually encouraging us to live a life in the direction that creates hostility with God. That's what he says. That means, in a nutshell, it means that my life is for me. To be a friend with the world is to buy into all that the world says, to think and do and live. In essence, my life is for me. Well, what are we supposed to do about this? Look at verses 7 through 12. There's a long list there for all of you that love lists. Here it is. Here's your list. What are we supposed to do about this? If I have fighting and hostility, it's because there's something I want that I don't have. And if I ignite these quarrels and participate in them because I have the wrong friends, what do I do about it? Well, here you go. Um, humble yourself before God. Resist the devil. Submit to God. Cleanse your hands. Think about your actions and what you're doing. Cleanse your hands. Um, purify your hearts. He even says in 10 through 12, stop setting yourself up as God. Meaning, you're supposed to be a doer of the law. Do you see that in there? But yet, you look at everyone and judge everyone. So you put yourself in the position of not loving your brothers, not loving your neighbors, but you judge them. You put yourself in the place of judge. You become a judge, self-promoted, self-voted, self-inaugurated. You put yourself in the position, I put myself in the position of judge. There's what you need to do. That's the list. Submit to God, resist the devil, humble yourself, purify your hands, or cleanse your hands, purify your heart, stop judging other people, go back to being a doer of the law. That's what, that, that's what we have to do. That's it. There's your list. And James is serious about it. All those things should characterize us. You remember how Jesus illustrates, especially that last one, 10 through 12, about us being a judge and one to put ourselves in a position of being able to evaluate other people? You remember at the end of Peter's life? You know, I love Peter. You can read about this at the end of John chapter 21. Jesus has just um, fed the disciples on the beach. He's just given them breakfast. And after that, he tells Peter in a very private way, Peter, look, this is how you're going to die. Like, this is the death by which you're going to glorify God, Peter. And Peter hears those words and he sees John and he says, oh, well, Jesus, what about him? You know what Jesus says to him? You know what Jesus says to Peter? He says something to this effect. What's that to you? Jesus has just told Peter that he's going to die. And Peter's like, well, what about John? Tell me about his life. Look at what he did. Look at what he's not doing. And Jesus is like, well, what's that to you, Peter? What I have planned for you is this. What I have planned for John, eh, it's outside of your purview. Stop trying to judge other people. Stop trying to evaluate who they are and what they're doing. You let me handle that. Stop taking responsibilities that aren't yours. Here's what I've given you to do. Well, that leads us to the second part of our map, our road map. What's growing inside of us? If we need to think about do we have the right friends or not, we also need to think about what's growing inside of us. Now, just for a moment, can you step back from the details of the verses we've looked at? Can you step back and get a wide-angle lens just for a moment? 
Do you realize that if you go back and read the text, do you realize how this passage is absolutely marinated, dripping with relational language? Do you realize that this text is saturated with relationship? That the tone of everything that James writes here is the tone of relationship. It's explicit, it's implicit, it's everywhere. He's talking about how we relate to one another. Did you get that? He's talking about how we relate to God. Did you get that? He's talking about friendship. Did you receive and hear that? Everything about this text is talking about relationship. It's dripping with relationship. It's saturated in it so that we might hear this from God and we might remember of the relationship that he has with us and we have with him so that we would be liberated. We would grow. We would learn. We would feel like we're advancing as people. Let me show you even more how much this passage is dripping, saturated in relationship and what God is for us. All right? Can I show this to you? Look at this. Look at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. What that literally means is this. You adulteresses. It is feminine plural. Beloved, there are images in the Bible that describe our relationship with God. Shepherd and sheep. So we need to think of ourselves as a sheep and we need to realize we're kind of dumb that we wander around, we're prone to wander and we feel it. But God is a great shepherd that tenderly prods us along and goes and gets us and brings us back. There's an image in the Bible of God being king and we are his servants, right? So that he's the great and almighty, holy, royal, omnipotent, all-powerful, infinite king and we are serving him. But... To use the language of adulteresses is reminding us of the most intimate relationship possible, marriage, in which we are committed to God and God is committed to us. We are the bride. There is no relationship that is more intimate than marriage, is there? Shouldn't be. Nothing. And James is saying, People of God, bride of Christ, do you look, do you, will you look at your own life and see this? James is saying, we have been committing adultery against our great spouse. God is saying, I see something inside of you that is growing. And what I see growing inside of you is that you are attracted to be friends with the world. You're attracted to the message of the world. You're attracted to what the world has to offer and how the world says to get it. And I see it in you. And it's adultery. He even presses that further in verse 5 with this whole idea of jealousy. Did you notice that? God is jealous for us. He made us with a spirit so that he might indwell us. Do you see that? He's jealous. And by the way, God is not jealous about us. He doesn't look at us and think, you know, Dave's pretty smart. I wish I had a little more intellect. He doesn't look at me and say, you know, Dave's pretty powerful. And um, if he were knocked off, then I'm not sure if my plan would continue. He doesn't look at any of us and think, wow, you have this. If, if this is gone, then I'm not sure I can accomplish what I want. 
He is jealous for us. He is jealous for you, for me. Can you take that in? And I hope it frightens you a little bit because if it won't, it will in a minute. This intimacy of God means that he is jealous for your heart, for my heart, for my mind, for my actions, for my motives. He is jealous for his bride. The reason why we had the call to worship from Hosea this morning is because there's a book of the Bible that tells us this explicitly, even though it's everywhere in the scripture. The book of Hosea. If you've never thought about God loving you like a spouse, read Hosea, please. Because what you'll find is that the prophet has to go and marry someone who ends up committing adultery and prostituting herself. And then he has to go and buy her back. Can you imagine this? Like, this is the description that God has for us. That we are the spouse who's run around on our spouse. And what we have done is that we have given ourselves away. And where that landed us is at an auction. And at an auction, there are people who are there to buy and purchase me. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the objects that was going to be bid upon? And to be there as an adulterer against the husband and to be there waiting to know where I'm going to go next and whose property I'm going to be next. And all of a sudden I hear a voice and it sounds like Hosea. And it is Hosea. And he's bidding for me. My husband is here. He's bidding for me. And he purchases me and brings me back to him. And I go home and we live together and try to work through all of the mess of our relationship. Beloved, that's what God is saying here. That he loves us as a spouse and he is jealous for us. And what that means is that God, because of his desire to be intimate with us, wants to be more intimate with us than anything else. It means that his love is so aggressive that it is off-putting. It should frighten you a little bit to know that the God of the universe wants to fully and completely possess all that we are. And don't hear that in the 21st sense of possession. Hear that in the sense of God wants us to be entirely, wholly, completely, fully his. And he will stop at nothing to eradicate all of the desires in us that go towards something else. He will stop at nothing with his love to eliminate things in our lives that keep us from greater intimacy with him. Can you believe that the gospel is that amazing? That God looks at us in this way and he knows that we are prone to have bad friends. He knows that we are prone to do things we shouldn't do and he still pursues so that the time is coming in which we will be absolutely fully known because we are fully loved and that God will waste no time. He will tear down everything that gets in between us. That is a kind of love that is unnerving, isn't it? Because we like to kind of hide some things from him. Newsflash, you can't. And he's after that, and he won't stop. 
And that means this in the text. Look at verse 6. This intimacy language, this language of relationship, God confronting us because of our fights and our quarreling and our, and our contentious spirit, giving us reasons why. This is how committed he is. Can you receive it from him? He's married to you. And what does he do in that relationship? Verse 6, he's not only jealous. Verse 6, he gives, look at the text, more grace. You see that? In other words, when God comes after us, he showers his grace upon us deeper and deeper. It means that his powerful love comes into our lives and changes who we are. He doesn't just wink at our sin. He paid for it. He doesn't just emotionally get us to want to follow him as if we just follow the example of Christ and we're good with God. No, he changes us because he knows that we are prone to wonder. He gives more grace. So, how in the world? Let's back up. Let's press this in about this whole adultery thing and grace. There's a story told of Jesus gathering with his friends, and he's teaching them, and he's instructing them. And as he's teaching and instructing them, there are people who bring this woman into the room. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Let that sink in. And they bring her in to Jesus. And as the story goes, they bring her to Jesus and they say, Jesus, the law says that she should be stoned. It's a maximum penalty and she should get it. By the way, not thinking about was she repentant or not? Not thinking about, hmm, does she realize she was wrong? Just throw that aside. Just, she's wrong, here's the penalty. Jesus, what are you gonna do? Now think about this woman, this is us. Think about us caught in the act of being friends with the world, of listening to the mantra and defining winning the way the world does. That's adultery to God and we're caught. This is the worst moment of her life. It is incontrovertible. She was wrong. She was dead to right. She was caught in the act. And Jesus bends down. She can't even stand up. He bends down to her. And then he looks at the men and he says, hey, those of you that are out without sin, how about you throw the first stone? You bring her into me and you show me the requirements here? Well, go ahead. Pick up the rock, pick up the first stone, and you be the one to throw it. And what happens? They all begin to leave. The text says from the oldest to the youngest, as we have it recorded in John 8. And Jesus bends down to her and lifts her up. And he says, where are your accusers? And they're not there. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Do you feel the weight of that? We're the ones who are caught and Jesus gives more grace. We're the ones who are the adulterers and Jesus lifts us up. 
and says, don't do that anymore, and I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to bring you in. You're going to belong to me. Grace is the only thing. Jesus is the only person that can enable us to draw near to God, humble ourselves, to clean our hands, purify our hearts, to stop sitting in judgment of our other people. The grace of God is the only thing that will enable us to come to God and to live the way that we should. The work of Jesus is the only thing that can shape our lives where we're wanting to not fight all the time and quarrel all the time. Where we're willing to submit ourselves to God and humble ourselves. Beloved, this is the last thing I'll say. You do realize that the universe runs on this axis, my life for yours. You do realize that, don't you? The universe itself functions along that axis of my life for yours. You have never eaten a meal without something having to die to keep you going. If you live your life thinking my life is for me, it wrecks everything. It creates disorder. It creates selfish ambition. But to live your life, my life for you, it's how the universe was set up at creation. It was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that talked among themselves and said, let us make man in our image. It was out of the overflow of love of community that God created man and woman, human beings, to be his image in the world. It's the way that God recreates us. It's not just creation, it's recreation. When God takes out our sinful desires and passion and breaks us of the dominion of sin and says, no, you're meant to live your life for others. Because Jesus is the one who did what? He humbled himself and became a man. He was the one that resisted the devil perfectly. He was the one who didn't sit in judgment on others, but faced the judgment for his people. So that as we receive him and realize that his life was for ours, we will stop trying to live our lives for self. Do you get it? And to try to live any other way is to go against the grain of the entire universe, and it won't work. It's his life for ours.